Welcome to Built to Play, your dose of video game news and culture. I'm Amin Bali, And I'm Daniel Rosen. Last Sunday, Atlas announced Persona 5, but not before trolling everybody watching. And we have the specs for the first Steam box. Also, Sandy Hook is somehow connected to video games. And Double Fine finally got the rights back from the corpse of THQ. Plus, we went down to the Xbox One and PS4 launch and talked to the damp souls who waited until midnight. Then, Chad Sophia comes by to explain why anyone should even bother. And last week we went down to Wordplay. I talked to the organizer, Jim Monroe, and later, Cardboard Computer about Kentucky Route Zero and Kentucky Bourbon. But before all that, let's talk about sex. Sex. So, there was a porn scandal involved with the PlayStation. Which is not something we say often. No, it's not... All that often that porn even remotely gets involved with PlayStation 4. To be fair, Pornhub announces that their thing works on every new console that comes out, including the Wii U. So, I guess really it's been there all along, so long as you wanted to look. But this one in particular involves Twitch.tv, which uh, is the PS4's current only streaming solution. And it's begun cracking down on certain games being um, streamed from the Playroom app. So Playroom is this app that uses the PS4 camera to turn your living room into an AR thing. You, it films you and lets you insert little mini games and AR toys into the shot to interact with. It's shooting this stuff live, and like any other PS4 app, you can stream it to Twitch TV. Um, but of course, if you stream it and don't use the AR functions, you just have a live stream of whatever is going on in front of your camera. So, um, what, what? okay, if I say, let's say I wanted to have um, a little bit of nudity in my um, cast, would that be a problem? Well, according to Twitch it would be, but it would still go up there, and you would at least for a while uh, have a little to a lot of nudity, but not too much nudity Okay. Um, on, on, your, uh, on your live stream. Uh, Twitch has been taking down the homemade porn streams. Uh, and has wait, de- wait, 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 stop. Porn streams? What's going on here? So what was, there was a, if I remember correctly, there was a big thing that one guy did specifically on his Twitch screen that got a lot of coverage. Yeah, so what happened was that one guy kind of discovered the ability to do this, and he was getting drunk on Playroom, and then brought his girlfriend in and started stripping her. Wow. Uh, and then people started realizing, I suppose he was, sor- he was sort of like the Marco Polo of this. They kind of realized this new frontier they had, and all started um, they started hitting, hitting it hard. And apparently there have been a lot of porn streams uh, on Twitch TV lately. Well, it is a mostly male audience that uh, is looking for that stuff, I guess. It's sort of like a voyeuristic chat roulette. Yeah, except it Sony is somehow complicit in all this. <laughs> um, so, I mean, to be fair, Twitch is a gaming-focused site and says the streams were if it taken down and Playroom directly directly moved from its site because it's they weren't gaming-focused. They weren't gaming-focused. But I'm sure we can all agree it's because they don't want people to stream themselves having sex next to a PS4. Uh, Twitch says they'll be looking to re-add Playroom to the directory when, quote, PS4 owners become more familiar with the games-only focus of Twitch content. I think they're already familiar with that. You can still technically use the Playroom video, um, and if reported, the stream will be taken down. It doesn't have any impact on your continued ability to stream since you can just create a new Twitch account. So I guess you could make a do-it-yourself PlayStation All-Star sequel? Parappa the Rapper porn parody? Daniel, you have ruined my day. This ain't God of War, triple X. Speaking about <laughs> speaking about the unmentionables, the Persona 4 
um, recently had a big announcement. So, yes. In that they had a sequel. But not before, like, messing with everyone involved first. Right. So I think back in September, we talked about how Atlas put up a site called uh, p-ch.jp, which was a countdown until uh, October, or November, specifically, Sunday. Uh, This was a two-month countdown, which eventually uh, opened up to a live stream of the back of an old woman's head, and then the front of this old woman's head, swaying in front of a television in the far-off background that she swore was showing video of Persona 5 until eventually she started showing us trailers of Persona 5, but they were punctuated between with about five to ten minutes of uh, the character's Teddy horrible Japanese voice. We actually got a couple announcements out of this, um, even though Atlas seemed to be more interested in making sure everyone was not entirely sure what was going on. Mm -hmm. Um, The first one was Persona 4 Arena... Ultimax Suplex Hold, which unfortunately may not be the name when it comes to Apes. Probably not. Uh, we already knew about this game. It was announced a couple of months ago, uh, but now their announcement was that it is now available in Japanese arcades uh, immediately effective today. Um, and it's going to be on the PS3 at some point. Yes, PS3 in the summer. Uh, that's worrying to me personally because I play Persona 4 Arena on the Xbox 360 and only have fight sticks on Xbox 360. I have to imagine it's an easy enough port if they already have that engine running there. Uh, but then again, I mean, you mentioned it before the show, it's pretty likely that that game didn't sell anything for them on 360, so why bother? Yeah, I mean, Persona has for the longest time been a Sony-exclusive series. Shin Megami Tensei a lot less so, but Persona as uh, two, from 2, 3, 4, and... Well, uh, 1. Yeah. Since the beginning, every, any game with Persona branding, other than that Xbox 360 port of, um, of, what's, of, uh, of Arena has been a Sony-exclusive product. Exactly. So it wouldn't be surprising, just given their track record, but also, if they're considering Atlas often focuses on the Japanese market specifically, this seems like uh, it just wouldn't be worth their time. Right. There's, But there's another game that they announced that was... Um, or, yeah, that they announced, and um, it's... Wait, is this... Is this my notes right? Does this say dancing? This is Persona 4, Dancing All Night. It is a partnership between Atlas and Dingo, who uh, you may know from the Hatsune Miku Project Diva games. Um, though these games are being published by Sega, uh, because they recently purchased Atlas, they were not greenlit by Sega, so this is sort of a happy coincidence for them. These games were probably greenlit months ago when Index was strapped for cash and hoping that another Persona game could save them from bankruptcy. It's probably why we're getting, and you'll you'll see with the next announcement, so many games that are um, Persona-related and but kind of don't push forward the franchise in any way. And sort of just kind of use other games as a jumping-off point. Or just use their assets as a way of, uh, like, hey, look, you love these characters, kind of. They'll be vaguely unrecognizable in this dancing game. Right, which um, will feature the Persona 3 and sound- 4 soundtracks, which are apparently combined. Persona 3 and 4 music are the best-selling video game soundtracks in Japan. Uh, you can play as, according to the trailer, many main characters, but the most important part is that you can play as, as Kanji and Teddy, and that's really all I care about. Yeah, yeah. The the trailer for that is actually kind of incredible. Um, it has some really great choice quotes. Just check out his step. It's genius. It's, that's, that's a pretty good reenactment. Yeah. Um, we also have the game for 3DS Persona Q Shadows of a Labyrinth, which is made by the Etrian Odyssey team. Now, Daniel, you've played a lot of Etrian Odyssey. How does that game play? It, Etrian Odyssey is a series of first-person dungeon crawlers that are sort of like if Dark Souls was about killing you without letting you keep any of your progress. 
So it's very much a risk-reward type game. Um, I would say less risk-reward, and what if a game from the 80s that hated you came out today and looked kind of pretty with anime-style stuff? Okay, and then they're going to be probably taking one of these and kind of grafting on the Persona uh, 4 characters and perhaps Persona 3 characters. Yeah, the trailer showed both casts, but mm. uh, probably specifically the most recent game, Echernacy Untold, which added a story mode to the series' traditional, very light-on-story method. Persona's always sort of been kind of like a D&D thing with a narrator describing what's going on to you whenever you interact with something on the map. Um, so I imagine that was a test run for the kind of mechanics and story implementation they want to try out with this kind of game. Um, that The reason it's called Persona Q is because the game uh, is called Sekaiju no Meikyu in Japan, which is often abbreviated SQ. So we're probably not... Persona Q is probably not going to be its title uh, in America, though that might mean we lose the really amazing Scooby-Doo-style logo for that game. That was actually one of my favorite parts of the release, was just seeing that logo that straight up looks like a direct-to-DVD Scooby-Doo movie se- uh, sequel. Yep. Yep. Uh, Persona Q, where are you? Um, though, hey, this is the third game that the Etrian Odyssey team is making in three years, which is really exciting to me as an Etrian Odyssey fan, and starts to make me understand why sports fans don't really get tired of the same game again and again. It is, there is something fascinating about the mechanics, and it is something that we rarely see stateside. I mean, the two games that they, the, the last two Etrian Odyssey games, I mean, they came out really close here, but they were a, uh, about a year apart. A year and a half in, in Japan, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we get to the big gun, which was Persona 5, which we know literally only one thing about, and that's it's going to come out in winter 2014, um, will be on the PC, uh, PS3, and will be in Japan. Uh, winter 2014 being not January, February, probably December. So we're looking at a year. Yeah, yeah. We're looking for a long, long time. Now, this is entirely typical of uh, Atlas. They always go for the older console. They did that with Persona 4, um, even though the fa- they released Persona 4 well after. Yeah, 2009, the- I believe, was Yeah, Persona 4. And that was, they, we were at least one year into the PS3 by then. Uh, Atlas... You know, their games don't don't break the bank in terms of sales. They Persona 4 was a massive success for them, but still it was a slow burn, and it's still not enough to, for them to justify HD development or next-gen development, which is a huge cost. Their first HD game, you know, the, the game this generation was Catherine, which is still their only HD game this generation, and that game was very small and simple and kind of their proof of concept. I wouldn't be surprised if Persona 5 runs off of, of a heavily modified version of that engine. It was very much them tipping their, putting their foot in the water, just making sure that, oh, everything's safe here, we know how the engine works, we know how to produce content for this. They want to get, but they want to make games for the maximum audience possible, and you know what? Several million people have a PS3 right now. Mm-hmm. Um hundreds of millions and at this point like they want to go for for them not for the, maybe a couple million that are going to be and again, and again they stick with that Sony exclusivity probably because the PS3 I mean the PS3 does better Sony consoles do better in Japan than Microsoft consoles though I, we mentioned Sony exclusivity earlier uh, Persona Q is a 3DS game simply because all the Etrian Odyssey games are 3DS games yeah it's, it just makes it doesn't make sense for it to bring that to have them suddenly change the entire architecture by going over to something like the PS Vita yeah or... I mean even just the game itself wouldn't work like the dual screen map interface just doesn't make sense on a Vita but um, you know it's the, a lot, these announcements are exciting to me, personally, as a giant Persona fan, and I imagine you're, you yourself as well as a big Persona <laughs> fan. Um, this is reminding me a little bit of the compilation of Final Fantasy VII in the amount of stuff we're getting. The, you yeah. wouldn't be remiss to call this the compilation of Persona 4? Well, the, the thing, though, is that that stuff was all canon, and 
unless Atlas is going to be the greatest company in the history of mankind, I don't think Dancing All Night is going to be part an integral part of the story. Yeah, and spoilers, a lot of the characters in that Persona 3, Persona Q trailer are very dead. <laughs> yeah, so it, it looks like this is very much fan service or games that, when Index was going bankrupt, like, these are games to bank on. Yeah. Like, they uh, have the soundtracks, they have these characters already made, and Persona 5 is probably going to have an all-new cast, yes. or at least only lightly involve the older ones. So every Persona game kind of takes a new set of characters and then vaguely involves the last game in some aspect of it. So, yeah, I mean, especially with Persona 4 being having a TV show and movies in Japan, uh, that those characters are very popular. So I could see Persona 4 living as its own sub-series under Persona for a very long time. Uh, meanwhile, in other Atlas Sega news, Sega says that they are leaving Atlas and Index to be autonomous and function like they always have, sort of like how they treat Relic, the, um, what is it, the Total War guys? Yeah. Uh, uh, and But also that Atlas can make games with older, unused Sega franchises, which is very exciting. I am looking forward to the various crossovers that we can hope that Atlas will finally bank on that uh, Sega has been missing out. Yep, we've got Jet Set Radio Persona. You graffiti, you use graffiti to summon your Persona. Uh, Skies of Arcadia, but instead of in the sky of a fictional pirate country, you are in the sewers of Tokyo. Uh, and Alien... I want to stop you there. That sounds like an amazing game. Someone needs to execute on that now. Right. Uh, and Alien Soldier, except the aliens are cultists and the soldier are high school students. Sky is the limit. Uh, well, all that talk of amazing potential franchises has made it a little warm in here. Um, and that's because we're about to talk about a steam box. I'm not going to make this pun. Yeah, it's a, it is not that hot in here, but we are, we are like, you know, getting some uh, coal in the back, some Sonic stuff type stuff going on. Exactly, exactly. So, um, I Buy Powers has a steam box prototype, and we finally have a, uh, a couple of specs on what the first machine is going to look like and what it's going to cost. It's 500 bucks, which is the same price as a Xbox One. Includes the box with a AMD CPU, an AMD Radeon R9 270 graphics card, 500 gigabytes of hard drive space, and a Steam controller. It'll run the SteamOS and any game optimized for SteamOS or Linux. Um, it'll, the iBuyPower says the console will run all Steam OS games at 1080 and 60 frames per second, which, I, that can't be true. That cannot be true at all, but it is, that, uh, from what I understand of PC specs, that's a lot better looking than an Xbox One. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, the, you can, because of the flexibility of a PC, you can kind of filter out parts to always make it better, and because of that, a lot of the times games on the PC just look way better. You can switch out those parts, so the hardware is always improving. And if the the guys who are really want the top of the line stuff, they will always have better looking pro, um, better looking um, specs than the mm -hmm. current consoles. The benefits of consoles, though, are always that because you have this one set of hardware, you can design specifically for that hardware, and that might be something interesting we'll see with the Steam Box, where they might not they might just not be as optimized as what we'll see on consoles. Right. Steam has been Valve has been saying rather that. They are they will they are releasing minimum and maximum specs for your Steam box. Uh, this feels like it probably trends towards the middle end of that. Yeah, from yeah. the five hundred dollar price tag. Uh, but we'll see. I have a feeling that I think every game optimized for SteamOS will have to run on various Steam boxes. Uh, though we might see an Android situation where the market is too fragmented to really get anything done. The the low-end one seems a little safe just because they are mainly streaming boxes. They won't be places where you will um, attempt to run an entire game from. So I don't think those models are the one, but the mid-range ones will definitely be the ones that are filtered out from time to time. Mm -hmm. It will, And eventually, I think, like, 
after the first Steam box, that one, we're going to wait only like maybe three years or maybe less than that before um, that just starts to look incredibly obsolete. With the fast, uh, fast moving um, graphics cards and processors that we get on the PC side, I mean, Steam boxes could be outclassed real fast. Right. Um, there are two, uh, iBuyPower has two variations on their box, uh, but they don't really have any details on the differences between them. I imagine one is probably a budget model, one's premium, something like that. Uh, but they are appropriately codenamed Gordon and Freeman. So take that, Valve fans. Half-Life 3 is real. It's not real. It, it exists it's in fake. a folder in an email. They said it. It is true. It's fake as fake can be. Just like these user reviews that they're launching on their site, um... Steam is, yeah, so Steam's launching user reviews. In expansion of their recommendation system, Valve is letting users um, scream and holler at games on Steam. I, by that, I mean re review. Um, They're hooting and hollering. Uh, you can review any game that you have played, uh, but your playtime will be displayed alongside your review, alongside your rating and the game's Metacritic score. That's actually really smart, because <laughs> if someone wants to go in and say... Oh, Skyrim is the worst game in the Elder Scrolls, and then all of a sudden it just shows up and says has not bought the game, mm -hmm. or um, it's like five played, minutes played for ten seconds. And, yeah, that shows like oh, this guy's this guy's quality. Like mm -hmm. I I can trust this man. Uh, you can you do not have to have actually purchased the game to uh, review it, but you do have to have launched it from Steam. So you have to own this game in yeah. some aspect, or bar have borrowed it. Yeah, yeah. Um, developers can also respond to reviews, but their comments will be flagged as coming from a developer, uh, and users can make past recommendations visible as Steam reviews. That, which I find, I mean, that's, that, that seems like a pretty reasonable system. Yeah, it seems fair, it seems like they have details there, and uh, I'm really happy that everybody can be called biased and paid off for writing a review. It's good. Yes, yeah. it'll be... Bring us all together a little bit. Yeah, nice, and just like, uh, just like this next story, which... Yeah. Is um, not in warmth, but in sadness. We have Sandy Hook, um, an official war, uh, report from the Connecticut, sa Connecticut State Attorney Stephen Sandesky has linked the Sandy Hook shooter to video games, but maintains that they had no influence on his massacre. After the shooting, many people blamed the shooter's violence on the video games he played. The report says that numerous games were found in the shooter's basement, including Left 4 Dead, Half Life, GTA, Call of Duty, Battlefield, DDR, Fantasy Star Online, Paper Mario. And Pikmin, but doesn't say that there's an explicit link between the fact that he had video games and whatever mental state that made him go nuts and start shooting people. Um, I think that I think it's kind of shameful that they had to go through the report to prove that, yeah, especially a year after it. Yeah, I mean, the fact that anyone was wondering—it's kind of like if someone said today, like, did did um, Die Hard did Die Hard with a Vengeance cause? Um, Columbine. Yeah, like no, probably not. No, it, it's really, it really didn't. It, it, it is. It's all about the mental state that these people are in, and people do need mental help more than they need. Uh, hey, stop playing your violent video games. I don't know if Pikmin made him want to kill anybody. Fantasy Star Online, though, may have. I, God, if you have you ever played the GameCube version of Fantasy Star Online, you lost characters like nothing else. I've wanted to kill men for less. And on that note, uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't use that against me in court, please. Uh, speaking about court, Double Fine finally managed to get their rights back from the corpse of THQ. I, not so much the corpse, but someone who had pilfered that corpse. One of the vultures. Exactly. Um, they managed to get rights back to Costume Quest and Stacking, which are two of their indie titles that came out kind of during their their early period, one day after Brutal Legend, mm -hmm. um, and are two kind of really interesting cute games, but kind of got lost to THQ. Yeah, so THQ published the games and held the rights to online and retail releases. 
Uh, meanwhile, Double Fine had the intellectual property rights, so they could make a stacking two or a costume quest two, and they made costume quest ports for iOS, but they really didn't have the ability to release those original games. Those belonged to uh, Nordic Games, who purchased it in a $4.9 billion package from THQ's bankruptcy auction. Uh, in a press release, Tim Schafer said, I am pleased that we have regained full control over costume quest and stacking, following a daring and top-secret midnight reign on the Nordic Games headquarters in Vienna. <laughs> As the lead designer um, at uh, at Double Fine, Schaefer's always got a good thing, good press releases that come out of these things. But he also said that the company had a goal to own every game they make and wanted to obtain the rights for their sentimental value. And, I mean, this is something that they've continued to trend with. After Brutal Legend, which was, I mean, it was a game that was handed from Activision over to EA, and they were they kind of lost some of the um, they lost some of the rights to their earlier games. Who originally published Psychonauts? Do you remember THQ? It was Majesco. Majesco, right? They own that fully now. They do own that fully, thanks, because Majesco went under. But um, part of the the part of the problem with with this is that they've been really into getting these rights, and that's not easy to do when you work with a publisher. They usually want the rights because if you as a developer go bankrupt or if you decide to not make any more of these games, they want to still be able to capitalize they want to, on it. Yeah, if it's a popular title. You see that with the um, Arkham games from uh, Rocksteady who no longer work on them, but Warner Brothers still owns the publishing rights, which is actually really funny because IDOS published the first game. Exactly, right? And then Warner Brothers published a second because they delegated the publishing rights to IDOS. Yes, uh, but then Square Enix bought IDOS and... With a whole bunch of other stuff um, going on, Warner Brothers wanted to expand their entertainment division, and they technically only write Batman. Right, so, so then they made a separate deal with Rocksteady and released the second game, and then decided to terminate that deal and made a third game themselves. Yep. So it, it, the, that's the kind of situation that they're looking to avoid. Um, it's an admirable quest. Um, they've been doing that with their Kickstarter campaigns. They recently had with um, Broken Age and now uh, uh, Massive Chalice. That look like they're they're at least on schedule. Um, and Nordic Games and Bellafine are now working together to release stacking, costume quest, and Psychonauts on PC and Mac in a retail box in 2014. Which I don't know exactly that's going to be all that successful. No, I can't imagine it is. But Nordic Games is a very small publisher. Uh, they're small here, bigger in Europe. But they they kind of make a good deal off of premium uh, retail packages. Yeah. So I, at that point, I mean, maybe if, at the very least it'll be something nice to have in your shelf. Exactly. The, 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 you know, the couple hundred people who want to buy a physical copy of uh, Psychonauts will probably make the money off of that if they sell each one at like $60 or $70. Yeah, yeah. Especially yeah. considering it's just burning these things to a disc and stuff, shoving them in a cardboard sleeve. Yeah, I mean, all the development work is already done. Anyway, that's it for news this week. We don't have much of a uh, bonus round because there was no news. This... Yeah, everybody uh, went to get some tryptophan in them because Thanksgiving in America. Uh, and we're stuck here trying to say what's happening. And next week is Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Or it's not this week. It's December. Week, next week is December. Yeah. I'm really bad. I didn't grow up among Christians. <laughs> I don't know a lot about your ways. Yeah, uh, we have we have much to teach you, Daniel. For instance, the mistletoe that is that, that there is there is purpose behind that. I'm not going to explain don't, it. Don't please don't. Anyway, so that's again that's it for news. We uh, we have a, a actually a packed second half of the show. For the last two weeks, Daniel and I have gone down to Young Dundas Square to watch the new video game consoles launch. Outside every store we visited was a lineup at least. 50 people long, for a PlayStation 4 or an Xbox One. On November 15th, around 400 people lined up in the near-zero temperatures outside the downtown Best Buy. They wanted to get their PS4s first, at midnight. But I visited the more moderate line by VEB Games, and that's where I met Owen Flood. 
Owen was the first in line, kind of, and had decided a long time ago that he was going to be in this line picking up this console. Like, you know, it might drop 20 bucks in the next three years. They might make a smaller version in the next four years. But I'm not going to wait that long. Like, I might as well get it now while it's cool and, and like hang out with all these other poor, cold people in a line waiting for the thing to come out. It's cool. It's fun. A week later, I visited the exact same Best Buy and managed to pull aside Louisa. Uh, she was one of the first 15 people in line there. I made friends within the first few minutes of sitting in line um, because of the weather and because we're, we're all just bonding over rainy weather. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's definitely a community thing. I think that's a lot of the reason why this is kind of bearable to, mm -hmm. to wait in line and make friends. That's what makes it. She was there for the sense of community, and, like Owen, had decided to pick up the Xbox One a long time ago. The weird thing about launches, though, is that there are so few games for these systems. Plus, they're potentially broken and always changing. At launch, the Xbox 360 was a completely different console than it is now. It was overheating, and there were very, very few games. You know, they're, they're game consoles with, like you said, few games, and most of them are bad. The best console launch was probably the Dreamcast back in 1999, but Sega delayed it a year after its Japanese launch so they could build up enough games. Console manufacturers just don't have the kind of time or money to delay a launch like that. So, once this was all done, I called Owen and asked him, was it worth it? He was in line for hours in the cold, and when I left him at 1am, he still hadn't picked up a PS4. Uh, I got my PS4 around 2.30. <laughs> So after we got inside, we waited in a line, and uh, it was nice, it was warm, and you could sit down, it was a bit more comfortable. Then we get to maybe about five feet away from the, the checkout thing, being like, okay, okay, I'm going to get my PS4, I've been waiting forever for this. And then they're like, oh, go upstairs. So we're like, okay, so when we go upstairs thinking, oh, we'll be able to check out there. No, we got put into another line that was just as long as the line that we got out of. So then we waited and waited again for another, say, 45 minutes. Got to the checkout counter there, like, go back downstairs. And we're like, what? And they, they like, let us go right to the, the front of the line and check out. But that was, that was funny and a very tired, you know, I want to go home way. So how were you feeling at around, like, 2.30, 2 o'clock? I was tired. I was just, my, my, my neck and back were sore just from standing so long. And, like, sitting didn't help because you're kind of, cross-legged on the floor so it wasn't overly comfortable um but i was just more so excited just to get home and thinking oh my god like i gotta wake up at this time to like go to work but i want to like stay up and set up my ps4 and, and play it and wish i did <laughs> so after all this was it worth it oh yeah totally it was totally worth it <laughs> why is it worth it to do to go through that line for someone else who wants to do this why is it worth it to to stay in that line well, like, it was announced, and then months went by, and every day I would be on, on my lunch break, I'd be saying, like, or I'd be on my phone or whatever, um, looking up PS4 rumors, PS4 this, PS4 that, just being like, and people would be, you know, saying, oh, it's got this, and it does this, and it's like, oh, cool, so it was, it was worth it, um, just after all, like, the anticipation for it, and then there's something about being in that line with those people who all want to be there too and everybody's all excited for it and chatting and it's like a different it's kind of more of an experience than just standing in line those in line weren't the only ones clamoring for the consoles at launch tons of journalists picked up these consoles to review again despite not having very much to review them with 
So I checked in with Post Arcade's senior writer, Chad Sophia. He reviewed the Xbox One, and says that so long as people are going to be looking for a brand new console, he's going to have to review it. Well, I think that there's uh, literally millions of people out there who are considering whether or not they want to buy an Xbox One or a PlayStation 4. And they're going to look for expert opinions. If, if expert opinions aren't provided, they're just going to go into it blind. They're not going to have any idea what they're actually getting into. So what you do is, as a reviewer, um, even though there's a lot of stuff, like even the box I was using wasn't even the final build of the Xbox One in terms of what its UI was going to be like. There are certain facets of the of the UI missing, such as the ability to actually upload your your videos uh, and and edit them using I think it's called upload. Uh, and 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 so even though there's there's stuff that I couldn't actually uh, have a, a, a an opinion on because I didn't actually experience it, I could still say. Okay, so the games looked great. I could say that the UI works really well. I could say that um, it's an improvement over the Xbox 360 in these ways, that it doesn't live up to what we were promised uh, in terms of TV functionality. I can still provide all that information and just give people more information on which to to uh, make their 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 uh, buying decisions, especially for early adopters who who, uh, who are going to go out and and buy something before it's proven by consumer uh, by the consumer market. So. In the past, technology specs have kind of rarely determined a console's viability. I mean, the PS3 was supposed to be the much more powerful console, and yet it ended up selling a lot less, at least in North America. Um, but with these boxes now kind of focusing to the all-entertainment system, do you think the actual technology behind these machines, or at least the software, is going to be a bigger factor? So yeah, I think that for not for everybody, for sure, because there's still going to be some people out there who... who are just interested in or in playing games, and they're not going to care about all the stuff that goes in between. Or at least they'll say they don't care about it. When they when it comes down to it, they might actually find that they uh, have really strong opinions about, say, the way you can create parties on Xbox Live versus how you get into parties on on your PlayStation 4. Um, but for gamers, I don't think necessarily that that stuff is going to be a huge thing uh, for them. For hardcore gamers, anyway. But as I think as as a uh, as any hardware generation kind of evolves, especially we saw last in the last generation how the the Xbox was basically the Xbox 360 at the start of the generation was a completely different experience from a user interface perspective than it was at the end of last generation. They went through so many uh, firmware iterations that by the end of it, you just you felt you, you like you almost had a completely different console. Um, and depending on what that experience is like, it can actually have, a, I think, a pretty big impact on on uh, on who buys it. I think that, like, if the Xbox 360's original user interface persisted throughout the entire last generation, it never would have become um, as popular of a device as it did for doing things like Netflix, for doing things like uh, grabbing Xbox video, all that kind of stuff, because it just wasn't accessible and pretty and, and modern. So... Short answer is yes. UI, I think, will have a, a really big impact um, on on what people eventually think of these machines in general. But I think that the the that different people will view will will place a different amount of importance on that. So your hardcore gamers, not so much. They'll they'll you know they'll get some uh, they'll they'll see the ben- the benefits and the advantages, but it won't be their primary buying decision buying uh, factor. But for say more mainstream people who want that true all-in-one uh, experience and, and who wants something that's really easy to use and pretty to use, 
I think that will actually prove a pretty big factor for them. So it's very much an evolving battleground. Yeah, it's it's uh, there's it's foolish to try to to. It was funny because I'm actually writing a a story today with my along with my colleague Dan Kazor at uh, Post Arcade. And uh, we've been assigned to take one side or the other and say who won the uh, the last war, or, or sorry, the, the launch part of this war. And the thing is, is that I start off by saying it's just crazy to say who won because you, there, there, it's like, I mean, it's going to change so, so much over the next few years. If you think about the Wii, uh, within months of it launching, it was just smashing uh, sales records all over the place. And for the first couple of years, it was huge. And Pundit said, okay, so Wii has won this generation of consoles. Um, and then a few years later, they just failed in all sorts of ways that uh, Xbox and PlayStation succeeded. And almost by the end of it became uh, uh, a footnote of the seventh generation rather than, even though they ended up still selling more consoles than everybody else, they... Uh, I guess that's just evidence that uh, that shows how how things can change so so uh, so much over the course of like the five to ten years that a console will be around. And despite all that, people still wait in line. So why buy a console at launch? Well, I suppose there is just one visceral feeling about being able to have this new technology before anyone else and play games, even if they're not the best, but at least they're new and you get to open the box. Okay, who does not like unwrapping things and getting with the box? It, it probably comes with the newness of it, it's the process of putting something together um, and making it and, and enjoying the, your purchase and your toy, your new found plaything. That's what's fun, I don't know, I like it. I like, there's a satisfaction unpeeling stickers and like cutting, yeah, so great. <laughs> Chad Sophia is the senior writer at Post Arcade, and Owen Flood is an audio-video specialist at E.G. Maijo. Louisa Vatsky is a student at OCAD University. Hey, I'm Armin Agbali, and this week on Built to Play, shh, you're in a library, because we went and visited Wordplay here at the Toronto Reference Library in downtown Toronto. Wordplay is a meeting of the minds of authors and game designers. Jim Monroe created the festival to show how video games and books can interact. He also made it a bit of a showcase for interactive literary games. That's not just twine games or text adventures, but games that are influenced by the literary genre. I'm the executive director and a founding board member of the Hand-Eye Society, which is a video game arts organization uh, that started um, in 2009 uh, along with um, uh, five other uh, folks in the games community. And uh, today we uh, had our first iteration of the Wordplay Festival, which is a festival sort of celebrating the most interesting uses of writing in games and or writerly games. So we had things like uh, a showcase with 20 plus games that people could play in the lab. Uh, we had uh, a panel with five folks who had one foot in the um, games world, one foot in the in the book world, and uh, we had a kind of in-depth discussion um, about Kentucky Route Zero with the creators. Jim feels that games get a bad rap. Many people say that they just don't like games, as if it's all one genre. No one says they don't like movies. People may not like romantic comedies or horror, but 
people rarely reject all movies. So Jim set up this festival to prove that not all games are action blockbusters. Games do have their quiet moments. Like at the moment, people aren't making literary uh, games that often, or thinking about them that often, um, in a in a general public sense, because they um, uh, they don't know that it's possible to have a kind of a different attitude about um, about the medium. And and to a certain extent, this type of event is meant to kind of like um, show people that not only is there uh, is this possible? But people are already doing it, and uh, there's an audience for it, which was which was really great to see today. That the the turnout and and the people that um, you know were very engaged by the subjects, which are you know I mean to to be honest, you know I wasn't sure if it would be well attended or not. I just thought, well, writerly games. It's a good <laughs> it's a good fit for the library, um, and we you know I have obviously uh, as a text game creator myself and a novelist myself a lot of. Um, those contacts and, and, and uh, breadth of knowledge that I was able to kind of, you know, help uh, create a, a, um, a couple of, like, f fairly modest for a first year kind of uh, events, the panel and the, and the discussion and the workshop. Um, but it was, it was uh, it's been gratifying that, that people are, are as engaged as they are. What, defi what defines a literary game? What make what adds those aspects? Why is Call of Duty say not literary yeah. versus say something like Gone Home or Kentucky Route Zero? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I I I, I pull away from the word literary mostly because as a as a novelist, I I feel like it it is it's pretty synonymous with boring. That's the that's kind of been my experience. Um, so, so I don't feel like literary is where we want games to go in, in the sense of like, um, uh, you know, like I think it's good that there's games that have literary aspirations, but I don't think that that's like, oh, hopefully one day all games will be literary. Like, I, I think that it's an extreme that we can show that there's a, there's a, like a, a pretty broad range of expression possible in games that go from first person shooter, action, movie style games to something extremely quiet literary and internal like that and that's something that prose does particularly well is kind of uh depict the kind of internal um you know uh the the internal life of a of a character so you're kind of saying that we can't that games just hasn't really established that you can have both say pirates of the caribbean and fellini in the within the same medium yeah absolutely i i think i think that's a great uh way to put it because um uh, you know, there was at some point uh, a predispos predisposition against film that it was just all kind of vaudeville kind of garbage. And, and you know, obviously we know today that over the decades it's, it's, it has such an incredible range and depth and everybody knows that if they don't like an action movie, they don't dismiss movies. They say, well, I like arthouse films. <laughs> you know, like they know everybody likes some kind of film like that's that's generally the case um whereas in people are just binary about games sometimes nah games aren't for me games are for me and, and i think in both cases it's problematic you get people who are like super hardcore game uh folks and and they uh come to represent the community in a very singular way and it's and it's fine but it's it's just one uh it's just one way to to sort of see the community so what would you say that? Um, what would you like to see more included in within the games medium that kind of adding to that diversity? Well, I mean, I, 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 as I say, I don't, 
I don't favor stuff that is entirely, um, you know, uh, sterile and literary. I like, I, this is one of the reasons that um, uh, we decided to highlight Kentucky Route Zero is that it has um, subtleties and, um, uh, and, and approaches a kind of some pre- pretty serious subjects and, you know, like debt and, 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 and whatnot um, in a way that uh, is definitely an artistic kind of approach. Um, but at the same time, it has a sense of humor about itself. It, it revels in the anachronistic kind of uh, depiction of, of like its world as being both from the 30s and contemporary at the same time. Um, so in that respect, it has fun with itself. It doesn't take itself too seriously. So I, I really, I do like uh, games that have the, uh, have the guts to be both um, funny and, and deep at the same time. Like, because it, it's... It's very easy to decide, well, we want to really play towards this taste, you know, and just choose one. Even though, you know, as a creator, you might have both those things in you. I think everybody does. Like, no one's purely funny and no one's purely deep, philosophical-minded. Like, I feel like we're people that have, like, bubblings and ups and downs of, of all those things. And so, so when I see a game that sort of, like, um, succeeds at kind of um, having a, a, a fun... Um, you know, philosophical, <laughs> aesthetically gorgeous kind of uh, thing. I, I want to celebrate it and, and to, to for more people to find out about it, more people to play it and not just to for it to be a thing that people know they should play but haven't played or, you know, like it becomes a book, like a book that wins a Pulitzer Prize and no one win, no one, no one like reads or whatever. Just like, just like, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. You know, so I like I like the idea of also creating a time-based event like this, so that people in the lead-up to it will actually have a context for playing that game. You know, that they they didn't have maybe three or four weeks ago. Jim Monroe is the co-founder of the Hand-Eye Society and author of the science fiction novel Everyone in Silico. Wordplay had two panels that afternoon, and I got to speak to people on both of them. We heard a bit from Ryan North last week. He was on the one about translating story from games to books, but the stars of the show were Cardboard Computer. Jake, I'm a game designer. Uh, Tomas, game designer. They created the game Kentucky Route Zero. It's a surreal point-and-click adventure game set in Kentucky. You play as Conway, a lost delivery man, who must deliver an antique to someone on Dogwood Drive. Then ghosts play D&D, naked men push an pl- airplane, and a tree is always on fire. But the game is still about Kentucky. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons that we're invested in that specific place, and, and that this game is like kind of about that place. Um, one of them is just personal, where you know, um, like. Um, uh, my girlfriend's from Kentucky and I have family there um, through her and, and um, uh, Tomas is traveling through there a lot to, to visit his, his wife's family um, and so you know so we spend time there and it's kind of important um, personally uh, it's also the site of um, it's the location for the first adventure game ever made Colossal Cave Adventure and, and that's a game that Tomas and I have looked at um, pretty closely for, for several years now and, and are, are very invested in um, and then, you know, there's like a lot of other interesting culture there. The bluegrass, um, you know, the bourbon. We're both into bourbon. Um, blue, bluegrass is like a, a really kind of interesting kind of music that's sort of devotional and reverent, also all about death and also all about working too hard. Um, 
and uh, and then you know more contemporary um, there's some yeah more contemporary experimental rock music from Kentucky that's um, super interesting stuff like the Ben Slint and uh, Bonnie Prince Billy and some other kind of stuff like that um, so I don't know there's a lot there's a lot there to draw on um, yeah there's a lot there to kind of keep us fed creatively in terms of thinking about stuff to kind of work in. And it's also, it's historically kind of an interesting place. It's like this kind of threshold between the north and the south. You know, it's right kind of in the middle. Uh, in, in the Civil War, it was like a kind of bitterly divided um, place where, you know, half the population was with the Union and half the population was with the Confederacy. And so there's all this, you know, and it went back and forth between the two sides in the Civil War. So it's a, it's a very interesting place as a kind of transitional place, too, in, in the way that the country is laid out. Um, there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot going on. <laughs> um, so you visit your white family in Kentucky, um, or in Missouri, and then also other parts of, this, of the South, basically. Um, but to, to get to, like you know, to get to Virginia and North Carolina, we drive through uh, Kentucky and then th- through West Virginia, etc. And like while we while we were traveling through, sometimes we stay in Louisville. Some, so we, you know, go, go to the Mammoth Caves, or you know, go on the Bourbon Trail. So, so yeah. What sensations do you that come to mind when when someone brings up Kentucky? I, I think sensations. I guess for me, like uh, Mammoth Caves was like one experience um, that really stands out. Um, it's interesting. It's like the largest cave system in the world. You really get that sense as you're walking through it. Like they. You, you go in groups of like 100, and it's it. You could actually build a highway in there if you wanted to. Like it's like really, it's this river cave. It's like really enormous, uh, grand. It's not like the most glamorous looking cave. Like it's just a river cave, um, but it's it's like the largest cave system in the world or something like that. It reaches all the way to all the way to the Appalachian Mountains or something like that. Um, and so you really get the sense that there's a lot of under under. under undiscovered like uh, they're still like mapping it out right now like it's, they still haven't really fully mapped it out um, and yeah just like driving through you know the uh, going on the bourbon trail is, was, was another one you know just like speaking of the map um, how do you guys lay that out in terms of what what, what do you what goes where on, on that and how do you determine oh this needs to be here and this needs to be in this location um, some of the locations are tied to real-world locations, not all of them. So those those are easy to place. Um, and then, you know, a lot of it is just thinking about where the player's going to be going when and trying to arrange things so that it's an interesting amount of distance to travel and kind of feel it out, you know, like don't want to make them bounce back and forth all the time, but also don't want to, like, keep them in one little area so they'll never encounter anything else. And just, just think about it like that. And then there's another very real uh, concern, which is that we need to be able to give them directions in terms of, like, take this road until you see this and then turn left or whatever. And so just, um, you know, between any two points, it needs to be something that you could describe in text pretty simply. Uh, so we have to think about that. All right. So one of my favorite parts of Kentucky Route Zero is just the tone. And it kind of reminds me of when I was a kid riding through, uh, riding home from various events late at night, and everything that was I once knew kind of became different. Like it's recognizable, but not the same. What attracts you to this kind of surrealist tone? Yeah, there, I guess there. Yeah, this scenario you're describing sounds sounds like 
stuff that we've come across long road trips and having like kind of weird encounters with stuff that should be familiar but seems kind of strange in these other situations um and then uh you know we talk about magical realism a lot in in relation to this game and uh, one thing that magical realism does is it takes it's like real social situations that are um that are like problems you know social situations like um colonialism in south america for example um in central america i mean and and um uh sort of finds new ways to look at them through the use of fantasy and um, you know, I, think that, I, I think that's a good characterization of that. Yeah. yeah. So that kind of uncanniness of seeing something familiar from a different perspective can be can be interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, considering you guys do do these long road trips, um, what have you have you drawn anything from these uh, from these long drives across country? Did, did I mean, kinda... Well, right. Yeah. I mean, I have I have family in Missouri and Virginia and North Carolina. Carolina so we do these long drives all the time and yeah like uh, you have you have a good story about like this gas station that you entered where you where you saw like this uh, a lot of social depth and like this oh yeah I was just um I was on a road trip and uh, ended up at this stopped at this gas station and the inside of the kind of you know the gas station office was like, really big and had a bunch of tables in the back um, and then there were like little kids playing in the back uh, and then I noticed that, you know, they don't just sell, like, um, chips and soda. They also sell, like, clothes, like, underwear and tools. <laughs> and um, these kids in the back were, like, this family that lived in this gas station. Um, and it was in this kind of remote area. And it was just, like, um, you know, just, like, having this encounter with some... been to so many gas stations, but then um, finding some new kind of social arrangement that, um, that I didn't expect to find there was, just, like, you know, kind of threw me off. Uh, in a way that uh, it's good to have get thrown off like that. Speaking of magical realism, you guys uh, up there described there's kind of two types. Yeah. Um, could you go through that and kind of describe where Kentucky Route Zero fits in? Yeah. Well, I don't mean to say there's like two types. There's two different kind of movements, cultural movements that both happen to be described using this phrase magical realism, and they they have some seem to have seem to be related. They're both in the 20th century, or like, and so one of them was this movement in painting that was this kind of kind of around the time of impressionism, um, but it was it was mostly this German movement, and it was about these realistic paintings that had this like real um, sense of, of sort of divine presence in them. They were like really intense, dramatic, romantic, realistic paintings. Also, they happened to be mostly of cities, so they were about so they weren't like rom- romantic paintings, you know, that are like about this amazing sunrise. They were about cities, and 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 they were kind of about you know like. Um, having these divine romantic encounters in cities and that kind of merger of the mundane, the sort of man-made, and and the divine was pretty interesting. And and then the other kind of cultural moment um, that's uh, probably more widely associated with the term magical realism is um, the literary movement, um, which is people like Gabriel Garcia Marquez is probably like the godfather of uh, magical realism but um, also it goes back there's a lot of Russian literature that fits into that form some of Nabokov's early work is magical realist um, but, and uh, Salman Rushdie is another contemporary author writing in that style and those people like um, I was like we were talking about a m- minute ago um, blend like real social issues with not just social issues but like blend realistic depictions of um, of people's lives with these sort of fantastical stories so 
like for example um, The Hundred Years of Solitude is a book by Gabriel Garcia Marquez that's about um, a family, several generations of a family living in this town called Macondo and there's all this fantastical strange things that happen to them but it's really at its heart it's a narrative about colonialism and about this um, you know, great family being sort of destroyed by colonial powers from the north um, but it's it's not you know told in this historical fiction way. It's told like almost like a fairy tale. So it's pretty pretty remarkable in its treatment of that subject matter. And where do you feel Kentucky Route Zero kind of uh, fits in and within those definitions of magical realism? Um, <clears throat> so we are doing a similar kind of thing where we're um, making a game that's about uh, real. It's, you know, nominally about real people, um, uh, realistic people and realistic kind of social situations and people dealing with debt and precarity and unemployment and being displaced by, um, you know, different kinds of forces, government forces, or mostly like corporate kind of forces being displaced from their homes or, or um, uh, sort of entrapped in predatory lending schemes. Um, but we're doing it in this kind of we're treating it in this kind of fantastical way that's not, you know, um, not irreverent. It's very reverent for the kind of seriousness of the situation. It's just like about trying to figure out other ways of, of thinking about it and thinking maybe, maybe even thinking a way out of it or something. Um, although it's, this game is not super functional in that way. It's not like a functional piece of activism. It's a, it's a piece of culture. All right. Um, just want to thank you so much for your time, guys. Um, how can people find you and get the game? Oh, yeah. Well, there's KentuckyRouteZero.com. That's probably the best way to find us. And our, our company is called Cardboard Computer, so CardboardComputer.com is, uh, is our website. But, yeah. Thanks. Black smoke's arising and it surely is a train. Surely is a train. They also brought down an Oculus Rift version of the tragic comedy play, The Entertainment. Um, it's kind of interactive, and if you have a chance to check it out, please do it. I've never had more fun playing an extra in a five-act play. We'll have a link in our show notes. And that's it for this week. I'm producer Armin Bali, And I'm featured editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of... Owen Flood. Chad Sapia. Jim Monroe. And... Jake Elliott. Tomas Knetzi. For the extended versions of the interview you just heard, check out our website, builttoplay.ca. Remember to leave a review on iTunes so we know how we're doing. And more people can find the show. But if you leave a negative review, we'll take a picture while you sleep, sell it online, and then put it on Twitch.tv. We're usually on the air on the scope at Ryerson every Saturday at 1 p.m. and rerun every Tuesday and Thursday at 1 p.m. And we update every Sunday. You can find us on Twitter at Built to Play and me personally at Florcon. That's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm Daniel underscore Rosen, famous for my voyeurism. Thank you so much for listening. I'm sick and lonesome and I'm feeling kind of blue Feeling kind of blue, boys, feeling kind of blue I'm sick and lonesome and I'm feeling kind of blue I'm on my long journey home